Join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the mysterious films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about a relatively obscure shot on video slasher, dare I say, American Giallo uh, by Jeff Hathcock, who's more famous for doing victims. Um, The film is Night Ripper with an exclamation point from 1986. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can find 1986's Night Ripper on YouTube, and I didn't look anywhere else. And honestly, this is probably one of the best rips I have ever seen on YouTube of anything we have covered on this show. In fact, it even has uh, VHS artifacting at certain points that really just makes the experience feel very genuine, especially if you've never actually had a hands-on experience with this hardware before. Which I find really odd because this is such an obscure VHS release. It's very hard to get. And to my knowledge, it hasn't been released on any other format. It hasn't been like digitally remastered or anything. Um, I, I, the, the VHS was released by International Video Presentations, um, and I, this tape goes for like two, 300 bucks now. Like, it's hard to get a hold of, but I'm glad there's a nice copy online that people can watch. Yep, uploaded 2020, so maybe this was uh, like a COVID project. Yeah, so this uh, I've seen this film a few times. The first time I ever saw it actually was on YouTube, and then I was lucky enough to get a, a VHS copy later. But this is your first time watching it. What what did you think about it in relation to the other shot-on-video films we've seen? You started by introducing this film as an American Jello, and that is spot on. It has all of the same... <laughs> Like stereotypical features that you would expect with off-screen killer, black gloves, tons of knife murder. I guess you can't have a giallo without tons of knife murder. And uh, yeah, that's the perfect description for this film. It is very, it is very shot on video. Um, I I was going to say it's like a giallo, only it's bereft of any style whatsoever. Which is really, I think, damning (laughs) for a film that involves fashion photography. Like, you'd think there would be some visual flair on display, but there's certainly not. Although the direction does lack any sort of distinctive style, there are a couple of very well um, framed shots, especially near the end. I can agree with that. But the other thing I was going to say is that we get absolutely no impressive um, kill effects or shots in this film. Every single kill, we basically see like the knife swinging through the air. And then we get a, a freeze frame 
photogra- photograph of the knife sticking into the person, which I, I know why they did it. Like, that's the same thing we did when we made movies back in high school. Because when you don't have special effects, you can't, like, show a knife plunging into somebody. Um, but it, it's still, I don't know. It, it, it made me chuckle rather than wince coincidentally it does sort of fit the photography theme right you could sort of see it as a as like a a photo one hour photo motif of people being murdered yeah and i definitely don't dislike the movie because of things like that this this might be getting ahead of ourselves but i think this movie is like it's like a puppy that's trying so hard (laughs) and you have to think it's adorable and like want to kind of protect it but it doesn't mean that it's effective or that it can be taken seriously that's kind (laughs) of how i feel about this movie um if we're gonna get off to to the faults right off the bat i i have seen like like Cinemax HBO late night porn with better written dialogue than Nightmare. <laughs> well, it's hard to determine whether it's more the dialogue or the actors delivering the dialogue. Um, both are entirely inept. But to my knowledge, only one person from this movie really had a career afterwards. And that's one of our main characters. Uh, what is the... I know, right? Name. I can't think of anybody's name either. <laughs> oh, the names in this movie are so difficult. Like, usually when I take notes, I write down the characters' names right at the beginning. I, in this film, it took me till about 45 minutes in to finally catch what they were. But he plays the, the character that the movie wants us really, really, really badly to think is the murderer. But you know he ain't. Yeah, did did you know right from the beginning who the killer was? Not right away. I was really considering whether this film was trying to do a switcheroo, a, well, I guess a double switcheroo, by making you think that this guy is is the decoy, but he actually isn't. But about halfway through the film, they show a scene that basically makes it so it can't possibly be him. However, in the scenes where there is the masked killer, there's clearly not the same actor as who it actually ends up being in the end. There's no way. Yeah. um, Yeah, that's for sure. But with the quality of everything else in this film, I assumed that was going to be the case. And I was right. But I am really glad you mentioned that about like expecting the bait and switch, because the first time I watched this, I really debated as I watched it. Like, does the movie really, really, really badly want me to think that this is the killer and they're just inept at misdirection or are they inept at the bait and switch? And they're trying to distract me with this guy, but then shock, it is him. You know, like, I, you can't tell what it is the movie's trying to do, but whatever it is, they're doing it ineptly. <laughs> right? So 
I just referred to this guy in my notes as Soup Nazi because yeah, that what, is his more famous role. Let's just go with Soup Nazi. I don't really care what anybody's actual names are. Yeah, so th this guy, this actor is most famous for playing the Soup Nazi on Seinfeld. And he has the same characteristic mustache in this film. Do you think he had it his entire life? Mm, I can't really think of anything else this guy's been in. I'm sure he's been in a ton of stuff. But I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that besides those two things that he's been in. Which is shocking to me that out of everyone in this movie, he's the one that got a, some kind of career because uh, he's just as bad as everyone else. I don't know about that. I mean, I think he definitely is, is hammy. Yeah. So is everybody. You but think they're trying to be hammy? Shelf boar's head ham. And that really means something. Do you think they're trying to be like, is this trying to be a spoof? Oh, Boar's Head, not a sponsor. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I would say it was trying to tell a somewhat serious story, but as a suspense, not as a like serious critique of, you know, human behavior. I don't think this film is trying to say anything grand. This is definitely only entertainment. I don't know. I, I think it's kind of tongue in cheek and like not that they were trying to make a spoof, but they knew they didn't have the resources to make a good movie. So it, it, they're they're aware of that. Right. They're self-aware. And, and I think I think that that helps. I will say I've seen a couple or I've tried to watch a couple of Jeff Hathcock's other movies. Um, the one he made right before this is called Victims. Um, and he later made one called Fertilize the Blaspheming Bombshell. And if that title doesn't suggest as much, I find his other films really misogynistic, like disgustingly so. Like they're filled with rape and just violence that's uniquely directed at women. And I don't get that that sleazy feel like that uncomfortable feel for this movie but i do for his other ones in a way that makes me really uncomfortable so i take it this is going to be this uh director's one hit wonder on our show i think so i mean did you get any sense of that here did this movie seem cruel or misogynistic to you misogynistic maybe not but you know, this is a film that primarily revolves around the murder of women. And to not see that as immediately misogynistic is probably, um, you know, a failing on society's part. I mean, I, I, I know we're going to come back to this, but horror movies almost always victimize women. And I think one explanation for that is that the primary audience for horror is male and most male viewers like to see naked women in their movies. Um, but I've also heard the explanation that like directors think that audiences will be more sympathetic towards a woman or find a woman more vulnerable and, and, and feel more protective towards her, which there's definitely a degree of, um, sexism at play there with you know that expectation but I wouldn't say it's misogynistic or like cruel towards women there are movies like Fulci's New York Ripper feels to me like 
it really is reveling in being violent towards women and like showing us women in these horrible situations. It feels sadistic. And that's how Jeff Hathcock's other movies feel to me. I don't know how jaded this is going to make me sound, but I think the most horrible position most of these women find themselves in are their absolutely horrible relationships with men. That, that There's not a single healthy relationship in this entire film. Oh, yeah. the All of these people are really pitiful romantic partners. And the dialogue really does not help sell any of it. <laughs> Let's let's go ahead and play the trailer, and then we're going to sort of walk through on this plot. In lieu of a trailer, we're just going to be playing the intro music because this film is so obscure. It and, and it probably never came out in any sort of um, commercial capacity outside of VHS. That there's just no trailer. <laughs> So the music was done by Bill Parsley, who really did not have much of a career after this. Um, I did see he did the music for one episode of Rocco's Modern Life, which I found entertaining. Um, But uh, he's obviously trying really hard to be John Carpenter. I think the music is one of the best aspects of this film, (laughs) like entirely. I have no complaints. It's so early 80s and so derivative of other film scores that, like, I definitely enjoy listening to it, but I find it absurd and comical, especially the way music is edited into this movie. Like, every time there's a scene towards the end where we're switching between a car driving as, like, the cops rush to get someplace and a cat and mouse scene in a mannequin factory. And when they're in the cars, one score plays like a driving theme. And then when they switch to the the mannequin factory, a like suspense theme plays. And it just switches back and forth, back and forth in this really awkward way. It just seems really uh, painfully inept. Okay, I I would not judge that as a musical score issue. That was definitely all on... uh... Was was this guy's name Jeff Hathcock? Hathcock, yeah. Hathcock. What <laughs> a, that's that's an unfortunate last name. <laughs> like you know, you know, middle school is going to be rough 
for a last name like that. Yeah. A- a- anyway, uh, I think that's we're gonna put that on his lap. That that is his that is his problem. Don't 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 put that on the composer. All Plus, right, that's that's we, fair. We have just experienced that same issue with another film, um, the Asylum of Satan, where yes. it went from uh, like a like a bluegrass like rockabilly theme transitioned with like again like a horror chase scene and a and a fucking insane asylum that was another movie where the car got its own driving theme and it only came on when the car was moving speaking of the cars in this film i think this is the only film i've ever seen ever that i can think of where uh they actually have probably used the real cars that have actual mechanical issues with them that you see every day like yep. there's a car with its tail light out and there's another car that clearly has an issue with its timing belt yep. <laughs> and they don't try to hide it at all over the audio like the guy's pulling out of the parking space and you hear like the <laughs> but see that's the kind of thing i like about shot on video movies i mean there's a lot but part of it is I'm very aware that this is being filmed in the real world as surrounded by real people and real places. And that gives movies a very unique flavor that I really like. It, it is interesting. And um, I, I've mentioned this before, I think during Blonde Death, the last time we really watched a, a shot on video film, we're not, we're not counting Criminally Insane 2 because that was a fucking disaster and only like 20 minutes of original film uh any anyway uh it, this used to be really that this whole uh view used to be really off-putting to me at first but when you get used to it it does have a really cool charm to it i think there there is a, an issue of trying to get someone into this this particular world of cinema where you have to overcome that hurdle because it doesn't have that distinct like cinema-esque look that we've been accustomed to our entire lives watching on, you know, TV, movie screens, etc. Yeah, and there are certain lapses in judgment that you have to be accepting of. So, for example, I think of a problem across shot on video movies, and that's really egregious here, is lingering too long on people's faces in, in like, you know, reaction shots. And it, you'll hear a line of dialogue, the camera will be on someone's face, but then their reaction to the dialogue will be delayed. And so the camera just sits uncomfortably on their frozen face. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think it happens in this film during every single police interrogation. Yes, it does. And so you've got to you've got to just be accepting that like that's going to happen, right? Although I was wondering, I was thinking to myself during this movie like what would make a director do that? Cuz Nick Miller does that really badly in the criminally insane movies too. So why do you think shot on video movies have these uncomfortably long close-ups? I, I chalk it up to bad editing. And in Criminally Insane's case, he may have just tried been trying to pad the runtime. So do you think that if I, 
you know, sat down to make a movie tomorrow with a video camera that this is just a, a problem I'd run into but did not anticipate that I don't know how long to keep the camera on someone's face. Well, I think that the big difference here is that we have decades of film watching experience that certainly we have learned something about um, editing and filmmaking in general that we could probably avoid some of these speed bumps. Whereas these guys, you know, they were making films in an era where technology was making leaps and bounds. They probably just weren't adapting fast enough to the times to really be able to, um, you know, avoid issues like that. Yeah. I also wonder if it's an, an issue with directors overestimating the abilities of their actors, because if you think of a lot of art films like Ingmar Bergman, for example, or Antonielli, like you've got very long lingering shots on faces in those movies, but the actors are like Liv Ullman and Max von Sydow and some of the best, most expressive actors of all time. And these actors can't do that. That is a great point. I, I didn't consider that. Um, hmm. You know, I just pulled up the IMDb for this movie. And I think this is the first time I've ever seen a casting list without character names. Yep. I noticed that. That's why that is, I was having a hard time. That is crazy. All right. So, uh, hmm. I, I do know most of the characters, though. Um, and I want to say the Soup Nazi guy's name is Mitch, but that no, might be wrong. It's, it's Soup Nazi now. All right. So let's take this opportunity to jump into the story then. First of all, at the end of the credits, I don't know why the exclamation point at the end of the title just cracks me up. Like, I can't get over this, that there's an exclamation point at the end of this title. Does that strike you at all? It didn't really come up when I was watching this. <laughs> well, the, I don't even think I noticed it until you said something. Did you notice that the credit sequence is over, like, stills of mannequins? You know, I did kind of notice that. That was probably what distracted me from the exclamation point. The fact that we are looking at some very uncanny valley mannequins. Yeah, they're they're actually fairly creepy. And I think the fact that this movie had access to a mannequin factory is probably its strongest point. It's I, a shame it's only really used for the intro and the final scene. Yeah. It, re it reminds me of the way the mannequins look in Tourist Trap, if you all have seen that. Like, similar vibe, but it actually succeeds at being pretty creepy. This movie could have used some scenes of, like, a gloved hand, like, fondling, like, stroking mannequin parts. Not even, yeah. like, sexually, just like a foot or something, or an yeah, arm. Yeah, the, they could have easily worked in a storyline where the killer, like, hid out in that mannequin factory and was obsessed with mannequins because they were well for the reasons that they are obsessed with mannequins in the movie <laughs> right because the killer has a whole speech at the end of the movie about how people are mannequins but well, we'll get there specifically models. models yeah models anyway we open up on this woman who's arriving home in an absolutely absurd sequined tuxedo jacket i mean this thing has shoulder pads that go out like four feet 
she rem- it reminds me of David Byrne's big suit that he wore in the Stop Making Sense music video. Like, it's just really ridiculous. It glitters uh, in the night. <laughs> yeah. But so she gets to her door and the soup Nazi shows up out of nowhere, like creepy guy with a black mustache uh, holding a newspaper. And he's like, there's a lot of weirdos hanging around. I want to sum up this guy's character by playing a quote. Don't tell me this gorgeous creature could only be Jill Regan. That's right. You're even prettier than I thought you'd be. Well, thank you. Ever do any modeling? No. Jill's a legal secretary. Really? Yes. Well, anything can happen. I was a butcher for five years and now I'm a photographer. You have great cheekbones. May I? You've got a marvelous face. I'd like to do some things with it. That is, if Dave wouldn't mind. It's up to her. Sure. Great. Then we'll set something up real soon. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was really hard not to laugh during that. You you could actually see the discomfort in the actress's eyes as he like manipulates her cheekbones to the left and right to to <laughs> to really analyze her <laughs> her facial shape. Well, like I said earlier, this movie tries really hard to make us think this guy's the killer. Like he he was a butcher. He's openly misogynistic towards women, like talks about them as objects. He uh, is obsessed with the deaths. He remembers all the victims' names and which number victim they were. Uh, He's constantly saying how the killer is so smart and there's no way the police are going to catch him. And it's just, it's all lined up where like it has to be him. It's laid on a little too thick. If maybe they were a little more subtle about it, they could have got you, but not like this. Yeah. So anyway, they have an awkward conversation where um, she's saying that she's a model and she's been on a photo shoot. And uh, she says at least this photographer knew how to keep his hands to himself. And Soup Nazi is like, are you going to hold that against me forever? (laughs) My wife and I both cracked up. My wife was watching with me and she was like, what the fuck is up with this guy? (laughs) Uh, All right. Maybe this movie is a little misogynistic. It kind of is, but it's, but see, it's really mainly this character. And I think it's, it's not made to seem like a good thing. Like, it seems like a bad character trait throughout the movie, you know? Yeah, this is a film. This is another film in our repertoire where you just don't find anybody likable. I mean, the the lead characters feel kind of likable, except that they're all cheating on each other. Yeah, um, they're all scumbags. So do we want to run down the characters now? Sure. Yeah, okay, that works. So we, ha- we, so we have Soup Nazi. And then next we have um, Useless Douchebag. Is that what we want to call the main character? It, well, his name is David. Um, oh, I didn't even remember that. But he is fairly useless. 
so he works along with Soup Nazi as a photographer, and he is engaged to one woman whose name I can't remember. We can just call her his fiance. Yeah, fiance. But when this other woman shows up to get some glamour photographs taken, her name is Jill Regan. Uh, David tells Soup Nazi that Jill is the most interesting woman he's ever met, and he's instantly in love with her. Yeah. And so his, let's his talk fiance, about Jill. Yeah. So he, Jill, the most fascinating woman in the world, drives a Celica and has a, an accent I cannot place. Yeah, and I'm that not, is her entire character. I'm not sure if it's an accent or a speech impediment. <laughs> oh no. I mean, I'm uh, not saying I'm not saying that to yeah. I'm not saying that to mock her. I just I can't tell. She kind of has that voice like um that like deaf people have sometimes. Yeah, you're right. Oh, maybe that was it. You know, th it's her and then there's a random victim about halfway through the film that also has like a weird accent I can't place. So I figured that maybe they just pulled uh casting from some kind of uh i was gonna say immigrant program but maybe refugees would be desperate enough to star in this i don't know <laughs> none of these people really had a career and they don't seem comfortable acting like they don't the the there's one other woman who's like a delivery driver for them i won't say that that actress puts on a good performance but she at least seems enthusiastic about doing it she doesn't seem uncomfortable whereas david and jill both seem like the last place they want to be is in front of a camera yeah david's acting like if, if he's in the camera shot for too long then you know the authorities might catch up to him yeah and i think we're supposed to i think we're supposed to accept him being coming obsessed with this woman who's not his fiance because his fiance is cheating on him with her boss, but he doesn't even know that yet. Yeah, we don't find that out for like another 20 minutes later. And anyway, so the only other character we need to discuss is the one I just mentioned, the delivery driver. The the movie tries really hard to let us know that she's a lesbian. But it's very clearly the portrayed as a straight woman trying to pretend to be gay. And it's it doesn't work. It doesn't it, work at all. It's because the dialogue is so ham-fisted. Like, she yeah. comes in, and she looks down at these photos of a model on the counter. And she says, beautiful model. Nice tits. And, like... I'm not saying that no woman has ever said that. I'm just saying that the placement of the dialogue in this movie, it's like hitting us over the head that she's attracted to women. No, there's nothing natural about any of the dialogue in this film. Her main function in the movie seems to be to have crushes on the uh, female models. And she there's a scene where she cries with her actual girlfriend because of a previous relationship. One thing I want to mention is whenever Jill and David meet in these early scenes, there's this absolutely awful Casio keyboard music that plays. Like, the credit sequence music is cool. This is 
painfully bad. That's enough of that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But anyway, so Jill is going to get some photographs taken by David for her boyfriend. And yet they are both like trying to flirt with one another and making it clear that they're really interesting each other. But the actress that plays Jill is, how would you even describe this performance? Now that you mentioned she has the same accent as like deaf people, I can't get that out of my head. (laughs) I mean, it's not just her voice, though. It's like it's like she's struggling to read her lines off cue cards on the other side of the room. And it takes her a second to see what it says. (laughs) Oh, no, you can't be blind and deaf. (laughs) It's this woman's problem is not her voice anyway. So it's very. It's very hard for me to tell throughout this movie whether Jill actually likes David, thinks he's a creep, or is just confused by him and, like, doesn't know what to think. Well, since the script was written by a man, of course she's going to be into him. It's just, like, there's a scene where David tells her that he's in love with her after, like, two days, by the way. And, um... Cause so awful. And her reaction is really strange. It, the, the dialogue goes like this. She says, you know, I'm sure one day you'll meet the, the right girl. And he says, what if I already have? And then she delays for a second and she points at herself awkwardly and says, me. And there's no reaction at all. We cannot tell what she thinks about him being in love with her after two days it's mentioned multiple times that she's already had a boyfriend or already has a boyfriend but we never see him and he's never on screen never mentioned again after this scene ever what i think is fucking hilarious is that um you know useless douchebag gets his heart broken well maybe heartbroken he doesn't really seem that into his fiance to be honest but when he finds out that there is an extra, you know, relationship affair going on. But then he's like continuing the cycle of like hatred and home wrecking by immediately trying to seduce someone who's already taken. I actually was starting to think the boyfriend didn't exist, that she was just saying that as like a defense mechanism. It's like when you are looking like really creepy as fuck and you approach a girl in the club and you ask her like, yo, girl, you have a boyfriend. And depending on how she says yes, you'll have your answer on, on whether or not she actually has a boyfriend. It, it come, that's, that's the vibe I was getting when... Yeah, there's, there, was some movie, there was some movie we watched recently where I said the same thing about, but I think because her acting is bad, I can't tell what I'm supposed to think is her motive. Like, the first time I watched this, I halfway thought that she didn't have a boyfriend and the request to have glamour shots taken was her roundabout way of meeting David because she's up to something like she has some plot. Yeah, she's totally not thrown off by the fact that this is a 7 p.m. photo shoot on a Friday alone with a man. 
Yeah. I like how this dude knows that he's trying to make like a good impression on this girl and he shows up wearing blue jeans and a long sleeve red sweater, like bright red sweater. That that is the that is the plumage that he puts off. Well, the outfit she wears to have her photos taken is awful. It it looks like the 80s vomited up a dress. Do you know the one I'm talking about? The one where she wears the big straw hat over it? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. With Is it is it a straw hat? hat? Yeah, it's a straw hat and there's just like a the the dress is like a like a sky blue with some very giant ugly flowers on them. Yeah, and uh colored flowers. If he's I do not believe for a second he's a professional a photographer. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, oh, it is a swimsuit. She's turned around. Yeah. Well, I don't believe for a minute that he's a professional photographer because the the faces and positions she makes for her photos are horrid. Like she's clearly not a model, but he doesn't coach her or say anything. He's just like, yeah, these are great. Maybe he's just one of those guys that has the approach where you just don't criticize at all or talk about your real feelings until you're in there. Yeah, maybe. I'm not that kind of guy. You're not that kind of guy, but you know the kind of guy we're talking about. Yeah. Well, shortly after this photography session, uh, his fiance calls him and she's basically like, you know, I never get to see you. When are you coming home? Um, and he clearly has no desire to talk to her because he's focused on Jill's photographs. But we just barely see off screen that she's in bed with another man. Oh, so, yeah. just barely. The shot opens up with the camera panning over him. Oh, I missed that. But yeah, so it's it's like we can't we can't sympathize with either of the characters in the scene. This I feel like this is a theme throughout the entire film. Jill? Hi, it's me, Dave. Dave McKenzie. Look, I just want to let you know I got your proof sheets done. Are you still there? Well, I wanted to get them done. Well, you certainly work fast. Only because it's you. Oh, uh, the pictures look great. Your boyfriend should be pleased. I can hardly wait. Uh, when can I pick him up? Tomorrow. Gee, um, I'm busy tomorrow. Um, how about tomorrow night? Saturday night? I forgot, tomorrow's Saturday. You'll probably be out with your boyfriend anyway. Um, as a matter of fact, um, he'll be out most of the day, and so, um, tomorrow would be fine after all. Great! But, what about your, your fiancé? I don't want you to get in trouble on my account. She probably won't miss me anyway. You say so. Seven thirty. Yes. Okay. See you then. Bye. This touching Casio piano music. <laughs> After context, he just got off his phone with the fiance who was wanting to know where he was. <laughs> she won't miss me if I'm gone anyway. 
the but this is what I'm talking about. This they're actually a boyfriend. She's just home alone in the apartment on Friday night. Yeah, and do you see how like all right, maybe she's just struggling to recall her lines, but the way she speaks and the way the music cues in makes it seem like something really dire is happening. Yeah, like, there's like gaps, like uh, pauses where there shouldn't be if she was saying a complete thought. She says like, she says like, oh, I'm busy Saturday night and the the sad music kicks in. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking she's going to say something like, I know you have a girlfriend and I don't want anything to do with you. But instead, she's just like, but I could do earlier. <laughs> 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 you know, I could accept her being like, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, we need to think about the feelings of the people we're with now. But it the, the script doesn't even go that direction. Not they don't even like pretend to try to take that exit off the highway. Yeah, it's it's really painful, although like I said earlier, they're trying so hard. I just can't judge them too harshly. You know, you're talking about last episode having trouble like connecting with these characters, like with the characters, like taking the film seriously because of like ridiculous shit going on. Like, yeah. That's exactly how I feel about Night Ripper. Yeah, I can agree. So anyway, I think we see his. We see somebody, I think it's a model who has come to the studio who is making out with her boyfriend in a car. You know the scene I'm talking about? Yep, this is the uh, car that has the timing belt issue. It, this is a really long, awkward scene where they keep making out and he wants her to stay. And she's like, stop, you're getting me turned on. And he says, great. Uh, but eventually she pulls away and she takes a, a, thankfully for the movie, a very long walk to her apartment before she gets attacked by the Ripper and we get freeze frame photo impalement this is our first real murder that we see i'm kind of reviewing this scene as we talk about it and it is just so strange to me how much emphasis the director has put on all of these characters doing really mundane shit between plot points like there's like a good like 10 seconds of this dude pulling out of his parking space and driving away like this run top this is okay so this movie runs for maybe about an hour and a half like even and i think that this film would have been probably about 10 to 15 minutes shorter if they were to cut a lot of the stuff out yeah um, it could be because that's true of so many shot and video movies it could be that the directors just like want to pad out their movie or it could be that they're struggling to you know show realism the way like martin scorsese does but they think that they can do it by showing driveway routines um or they're just not sure what to do i'm not really sure maybe part of the 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 whole shot on video issue is that maybe you have less of an idea of just how much footage you have in the condition it's in and so you have everything together and you're trying to, you know, put it, put it all together into something like viable. Whereas if you have 
you know, traditional filming equipment, editing equipment, that sort of thing, maybe you have a better idea of what the picture is going to look like, like a quarter or even halfway through. But going back to this murder scene, you know, the, the still shots didn't bother me. Um, I kind of figured that it was kind of a, you got to give this movie credit is that it does not try to be over ambitious. It is aware of the budget and the capability that is possible. And it stays within those, those bounds. This film does not try to do anything crazy and fail at it. It does everything that it can reasonably accomplish whether that's mediocre or not, whatever, I don't think it tries to out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. not trying to to reach for the stars when it doesn't have enough fuel to like leave the atmosphere. Yeah, I, and that's part of what I mean by like it's trying really hard, but it's also it. You've got to kind of love what it's trying to do because it's aware of its limits. It's it's small scale. It's just got a small cast of characters and they're just trying to get a story to you. So when we have like these still these still shots of like, you know, the victims getting stabbed. Oh, I thought it was all right. And again, probably overlooking into the script, but it also matches like uh, the photography motif in a way. I mean, I don't think that's what they were going for because I think they would have done something really cheesy. Like every time he stabbed or every time it went to like a stab picture, maybe you'd hear like a camera click. I yeah. think maybe that would have been pretty cool to put in kind of bit the theme, but nah, they don't do that. Yeah, there's a there's an Italian giallo called uh, Nothing Underneath that I that if I remember correctly does that. It's about fashion models too. And when people get killed, it does like it. A photograph style but anyways after this murder our two main characters get called in soup nazi and david and they have i was about to say the most awkward police interview scene i've ever seen but it's really not any more or less awkward than the rest of the movie yeah i mean uh i think the demon lover had a more awkward oh um, god i forgot I compared to that uh, this is this is like expert <laughs> expert yeah. professionalism you're totally right of the detective <laughs> even though he's like hey you know not related to the case but how many models do you sleep with you know that's still more professional than what the fuck happened in that film <laughs> well david gets like really angry and defensive that they're questioning him and uh soup nazi is almost gleeful that he's being grilled it, when they start asking him questions, he's like, I, I was wondering when you were going to get to me. And and he's smiling the whole time. It's I, I don't know that it's a good performance, but it, it it's interesting. I do find him entertaining. Well, whereas like David is sweating and fidgeting in his seat the entire time, Soup Nazi is completely still making eye contact with the detective. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you make eye contact with someone who isn't looking at you, but this guy is somehow doing it. Yeah, he's like one of those pictures on the wall that wherever you move in the room, the eyes follow you. Yeah. But uh, if, if you ever want to know how to talk to the police, neither of these guys are doing it right. Neither of them. <laughs> no. But I will say one thing I like in this movie 
and I don't see it a lot, is especially with David, the main detective the whole time keeps telling him, like, I don't think you did it. Like, I just think you can help. You know, I'm asking you questions because it's like you might have this perspective. And I hate it when other movies give us the like false suspense that the police suspect the main character and maybe he's wrongfully accused, even if it doesn't make any sense to suspect him. And this movie sidesteps that. The uh, the police will definitely lie and tell you you're not a suspect when you are, <laughs> assuming you're uh, not under Miranda or anything. Yeah, but I don't get the sense that's what's going on in this movie. No, no, definitely not. This one was not that, not that the uh, 40 chess. Because, because even at the end, when the police figure out before David who the Ripper is, they go and get him to, and, and take him along to go catch the person because his, his new girlfriend is being held captive. It just seems really like a, a partnership almost. This scene is followed by one of the like 50 phone call scenes in this film where this time it's uh, David talking to his fiance and we haven't mentioned this yet, but just about during every phone conversation, his fiance is masturbating. <laughs> yeah, this is the one where she's in the bathtub. Yeah, she's in the bathtub with like the candle and the soap dispenser. <laughs> and this is just another scene where she's like, I miss you. I wish you were here. Um, and he says he's got a lot of work to do because he's working on photos for Jill, I think. Probably. He, he asks the delivery girl to take the photos to Jill. He was going to go drop them off. That was their Saturday night date. But his fiance just called and she's like, I want you home or I'm coming there. And she's very insistent. So uh, there's a very awkward scene where the delivery girl tries to pick up Jill. She's like, you know, you don't have to spend Saturday night all alone. This performance is not convincing at all to me. The delivery girls, you mean? Yeah. It's not, but like, I think her performance is bad, but it's not bad for the same reason that David's and Jill's are. She she seems like an overenthusiastic theater student, whereas they seem like shy people who don't want to be in theater to begin with. So there's a scene in that's coming up where David finds out his fiance has been cheating on him with her boss. Yeah. Promptly following that scene, he rips down all of her portrait shots the headshots that were used as promos on the uh, the the photo uh, office's walls. Yeah, watching this scene in the background while we're talking, it this was clearly filmed after that because the pictures are missing off the wall. <laughs> 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 I forgot to put them back up. <laughs> I did not notice that. I didn't notice it either. I just have this running in the background. Yeah, he rips all her photos off the wall angrily as if he's really upset about this. But the performance has given us no indication that he cares. He's, uh, he's happy that he can go profess his love to Jill. I don't know. Sometimes people milk this kind of disaster, though, right? Where like, yeah, they didn't really care, but 
because it's a bad situation, they can kind of get some attention for it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. He doesn't really seem like... This guy sucks on so many levels. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the attention-seeking type, but he's not... He's he's not an admirable protagonist either. But this is the scene where he goes to tell her that he's in love with her, and we talked about that earlier, where he (laughs) says he's already found the right girl. Do you want to play this awkward-ass dialogue? Sure. I tried to call you Saturday night. But uh, you were gone. Well, I thought you had other plans. I did. I broke up with my fiance. I'm sorry to hear that, Dave. Well, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Anyway, it's over. She's out of my life. Well, I'm sure one of these days you will find the right girl. I already have. What makes you think I'm the right girl? We hardly know each Jill, other. I might be way out of line for saying this, but I just can't get you out of my mind. I mean, I've never felt this way about anyone before. And, well, I know you've got a boyfriend, and maybe I don't stand a chance, but damn it, I love you. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> that's so terrible i guess there was a really noisy bird outside and they couldn't get it to shut up <laughs> yeah that oh it's so painfully awkward oh. and i have i have no idea what jill is feeling about this the whole time Her... I, I missed when she like pointed at herself before saying me <laughs> until you yeah. mentioned it earlier so now i'm watching for it <laughs> Yeah, it's very strange. All right, so for y'all at home that have no interest in watching this film, I would say between the two sound uh, clips that we played, I think you have like the full experience sans uh, stabbing scenes. Yeah. So I want to talk about the the next scene is really weird. It's a sex scene between a couple of characters that we don't otherwise know. But the camera is filming from below the side of the bed. So we just have to listen to the sounds of sex. We can't actually see what's going on. What did you think about this? It's kind of a mystery. Who Who is fucking and why? At first, I thought this was like a follow-up to the previous scene where we were going to see David and uh, Jill like consummating their bizarre infidelity, not infidelity, like tryst. But no, these are two characters that after the scene, we never see them again. Yeah, but they just happen to be fighting about the woman wants the man to tell his wife that they're together. And he's basically like, uh, yeah, I get to do whatever I want. And and she has a great line, though, here. Um, he says that he loves her. And she says, this isn't love. This is just sweaty bodies fucking under a flood lamp. And I'm tired of flood lamps. <laughs> Yeah, that's the best line in the movie. Well, this is the 80s, so uh, divorce laws were pretty draconic. 
he does not want to be taken for like 80 percent of his net worth <laughs> just because he's uh you know uh betraying his wife's trust <laughs> yeah well he's doing all kinds of bad things is the suggestion he's yeah this guy he, sucks he's cheating on he's cheating on his wife and he's being a dick to this other girl he gives a very audible slap to this woman uh because she is not willing to uh play the same game anymore it, it's like a very cartoonish sounding sound effect after he leaves someone else shows up and stabs her in the neck and they're wearing a black hood over their face, giallo style, so we can't see who it is. But so I guess this whole scene is just there to set up this victim for us. Yep, absolutely. No bearing on the plot outside of um, this woman gets murdered. Uh, I will mention that this is the first scene where we see the full body of the murderer, and it's totally a giant man. <laughs> like, there's no way around it. <laughs> Which is going to matter later. In the next scene, we hear Soup Nazi telling us that the newspaper reporters think the Ripper is a photographer named Jerry Thomas. And this is where Soup Nazi is like, it can't really be the Ripper. The Ripper is too smart to make a mistake like that. But obviously, this is not the real killer because the movie is only halfway over. Yeah, you know, this is the point where I was like, wow, what the heck? There's like an hour left. Well, we get some more relationship drama because David's fiance goes over to his house and is like, you know, can we have a, a drink just for old time's sake? And, you know, we can be friends. And she asked to use the phone. And there's this whole scene where she calls Jill and he's she's like, David's begging me to take him back and he tried to rape me. And then she tells David, I told you, nobody dumps me. This whole, this whole scene was really dumb to me. And then she screamed so loud the neighbors came to make sure everything was okay. <laughs> yeah. made David look like a dick. Right. Which, I mean, he is, but not for this reason. No, he, he's a dick, but she seems worse. They were just so meant for each other. It's a shame it didn't work out. Oh, I don't know. Apparently, Jill has a girl or a boyfriend that she's cheating on. So they all deserve each other. I don't other. think he exists. I don't think there's a boyfriend. I'm, I'm just, that's my official stance. Well, we definitely don't see him in the world of the movie. So your interpretation is as good as any. <laughs> the police start to trail David as a possible suspect for some reason. I'm not well, quite sure why. Because after, because after the fiance leaves, she gets murdered. Was that at this point? Yeah, she gets when she gets in her car, someone kills her. She somehow is in a parking garage, even though she was just at a house. I don't know how that works, but for whatever reason, uh, I want to make sure was this soup Nazi that she runs into in the parking garage? Yes. Yeah. This was the scene that made me realize it 100% could not be this guy unless they were just going to have a really big plot hole because he helps her pick up her keys. Then she gets in the car and is promptly killed by someone that's been hiding in the back seat. And there's absolutely no way that that man was able to get into the back seat after handing her, <laughs> her keys to him. Like there's no way or him handing her keys back to her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had already 
I'd already gathered that it could not be him earlier because it was just too obvious. But yeah, this is the scene that solidifies that it's uh, illogical. So I think we can jump ahead a little bit. There's a bunch of stuff that's not really too important to the plot. You know, police start tailing David, thinking he's a possible suspect. Um, there's more interactions with Jill. But there, there is a scene that, uh, in my opinion, sort of solidifies who the future killer is definitely going to be. Not only because there's only like five characters in this film, but because up until this point, they haven't focused on her at all. We have a scene with the delivery driver in her bedroom with, uh, I'm assuming, a girlfriend or a one-night stand who's trying to comfort delivery driver because she's having a, like, uh, a, a, like the emotionally depressing flashback to a previous relationship that really mentally scarred her. And this is basically the giant red flag that you're looking for to figure out the mystery and what's going on. Can't you forget her? I'm trying to! She keeps burning in my brain. So my head feels like it's on fire. She won't go away. Go away, Angela! Go away. Leave me alone. Maybe it would help if you saw her again. You can't. She's dead. Maybe it would help if you saw her again. Like, girl, did you just see the same mental breakdown we did? We know that it's her at this point. Yeah, it has it has to be. There's there's really nobody else it could be. Um, so let me let me summarize what happens next real quickly, and then let's talk about the final scene. We pretty much know now that it's the delivery driver girl, and she calls David pretending to be a client who wants to hire him. At the same time, Soup Nazi wants Jill to come to the mannequin factory with him so he can take photographs of her. And delivery driver girl shows up asking if she can help out. So you've got David at one end of town for a client who doesn't exist and delivery driver and Soup Nazi and Jill are all at the mannequin factory. So we already said this this mannequin factory is a great setting for a final scene, but what did you think of this final cat and mouse scene altogether? So we have Delivery Driver and Soup Nazi at first, and Delivery Driver at this point has let the cat out of the bag. He, She has uh, basically revealed what we if we've been able to figure out like half an hour prior, which is she is actually the killer and soup Nazi being the absolute autistic genius that he is also catches on to this and then promptly tells her, I'm going to call the police and then turns <laughs> his back on her and is promptly murdered. Yeah. Like, I don't know how else he expected that to go down, but I turned to my wife and I was like, I would not have turned my back on this person. Um, nor announced my intentions like he is obviously hugely confident that is what eventually leads to the cat and mouse when jill shows up a uh, delivery driver pretends that she is going to be the photographer and then drops the facade 
after a very unconvincing performance and, and chases her throughout the, the facility with a giant knife. And we get to the scene where the police have determined that the delivery driver is the killer based on the tip of uh, someone else who was arrested for, I'm assuming, attempted burglary. A whole plot point that takes very long to resolve, way too long to resolve. But I have to say that that's probably the most realistic thing about this film, is that there's a lot of crimes um, that are solved, not through good detective work, but just because someone else squeals after being caught for something completely different. Um, doesn't really make for good uh, cinematic viewing, but that's how it would be some, some days. So the police are on the way to the warehouse, and we get that shift in music tone where we have the hyper dramatic music of police get into the warehouse, and it's immediately swapped to a scene with low key, like suspense dread setup uh, audio. And it just fucking piggybacks, I don't know, four or five times. It's really jarring. It's not the first time we've seen this sort of thing, but man, I am just so self I'm, I'm very aware of it now when I see it. Thanks. Thanks, Asylum of Satan. Yeah, it's, it's even more awkwardly done here, if that's possible. But this is this is the, the scene. This is the whole section of the film that has the most style in it because you actually have these really weird mannequin set pieces that they can, you know, position and manipulate in certain ways to really ramp up that creep factor. Because these are not like your normal department store mannequins. I don't know where the fuck they went, but these are like mannequins that have nipples. They're mannequins that have like detailed faces. Uh, maybe they're like specialty model mannequins. Maybe I just don't shop in anywhere high class enough that warrants them buying like a $2,000 mannequin with fucking nipples. I don't know. It's, I think a lot of the effectiveness of this scene, the setting does for them. Like, I think it's just by virtue of being in a mannequin factory with these weird mannequins that these scenes work as well as they do. The lighting is well done as well. Um, it's definitely not natural. You know, you'll have like random blue light source, orange light source there. You know, for sure, a factory isn't going to have any lighting like this. So they did set it up to to be picturesque. Yeah, this scene's actually really cool. Um, yeah, best and- scene of the film by, by a long shot, mostly because it doesn't make you feel emotionally awkward about any of the romantic entanglements these people are getting involved with that. And there's a scene where uh, Jill is walking through like a valley of mannequins and they all have like their hands outstretched, like jiggling in front of her. There's also like racks of limbs hanging like, uh, like clothes drying. I thought this stuff was really cool. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's almost like a more competent director directed this part. I mean, maybe they filmed this like pseudo chronologically, and this is just like the culmination of all of his directing experience up to this point. We also we get a pretty cool speech from Delivery Girl about how uh, people are really hollow mannequins and resemble dead bodies, and then she says, she tells Jill that all models are bitches because they're all self-centered and they can only worship themselves 
And she has this great speech where she says, I could have been a surgeon if I wasn't, if it wasn't for a model, because she enticed me away from medical school. And I was obsessed with her and I wanted to be near her all the time. And I loved her, but she couldn't love me because she could only love another mannequin like herself. That's certainly better, um, a, a better explanation speech of their motivations than I was expecting. Yeah, it's actually a, it's actually an overly clear backstory and psychological motivation, as if right. like a a psychoanalyst sat down and wrote a a, a police um, a killer profile on somebody. It might be a little too detailed, but uh, it doesn't really bother me compared to so many other things in this film. However, what does bother me is how this uh, how this movie ends. <laughs> this has to be the most slapstick vaudeville epic fail I have ever seen in a slasher film ever. You have Jill who is defending herself from delivery driver's knife stab and she just happens to be behind an outstretched mannequin arm delivery driver's knife as it comes down gets coincidentally stuck in the kung fu grip of a mannequin arm and cannot get her knife free she lets go of the knife and tries to attack jill herself only to trip and knock over the mannequin that's holding the knife and then is promptly stabbed by the mannequin that falls on top of her. I understand the, the poetic justice or nature of this climax, but it is extremely silly and the movie ends maybe 15 seconds afterwards with no other closure. You're leaving out there right before this fight scene starts. Delivery driver yells, you're going to eat it, bitch. <laughs> God, I know. I forgot about that. <laughs> it sounds like it's like Freddy Krueger was in a Russ Meyer movie. That's what <laughs> it, it, the dialogue sounds like. But anyway, um, no, the, the silly fight scene and mannequin kill uh, is sort of the poetic justice that I feel like a high school creative writing student would come up with, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's, you can see the, you can see the suggestion of irony, uh, but it's so awkward and inept that you can't really respect it. <laughs> um, that, that's really the exclamation point at the end of Night Ripper. Yeah. Yeah. So our two cheating lovers are safe to be together and live happily ever after or until Night Killer 2. Night Ripper 2. Night Ripper 2. Yeah. All right, let's give final thoughts and ratings out of four. Also, don't scare me like that. There's not actually a sequel, right? No. Oh, thank God. I mean, how would you follow that up? I guess it would just be like another story involving models getting mass murdered. Maybe uh, maybe David goes on to leave photography and become a private detective and 
starts trying to solve other murders. Well, Jill could be his sexy secretary. Night Ripper is definitely an interesting viewing experience, but it's probably best just sort of watched with friends for fun. It's definitely not anything you need to go out of your way for in terms of uh, like meaningful entertainment value. This film does have some cool shit going for it, but I don't think there's enough there to really mandate this as like a viewing experience. I think it's crazy that the VHS for this sells for like two plus 200 plus dollars, probably more at this point. Right. Yeah. I think it's in the 200 ballpark, 250. man. Um, I, if you are a, um, shot on video enthusiast, then this is probably something you should seek out. But for like normies, this is mostly going to be uh, like a riffing session for all y'all because uh, outside of some really stylistic, ma- you know, mannequin shots at the end and some interesting music choices, I don't think there's really too much that's memorable. Oh, you know what? I guess all the toxic relationship shit is pretty memorable because, God, the dialogue is so awful. I mean, you, you heard it here. This is so probably some of the worst dialogue that we've had in any of the films we've covered. Probably this and what, Night Killer? Coincidentally, another film with Night in the name? Yeah, but they're both amusingly bad. Yeah. But whereas this is just like really awkward, I think Night Killer was kind of like, what if an alien was trying to write human dialogue? It's like a different kind of bad. Yeah. Here, I mean, I think Luke hit the nail on the head here where th- this is like a, a high school creative writing project that somehow made it into a film script. And that is perfect. This has all the same, like the, the, this has the worldview of a high schooler who just has no experience with how other people act or I guess react to, to other uh, like complicated social structures. I, I don't know. I definitely was not bored watching this, but this film probably could have been about 15 minutes shorter and you wouldn't have missed anything. Uh, we basically skipped almost the entire last half of the film covering it because there's just so much fluff involving the police, like in this really ridiculous chase scene, uh, catching a, an attempt, like a burglary suspect who's eventually the, the guy that, gives the big lead on the case as to who the suspect could be. Um, I got, I gotta say this is probably like a one star film overall, just cause there's just so much here that just doesn't stick. Like you said earlier, this film tries really hard within its means to accomplish something very entertaining. And in some respects it does but there's just so much bad writing and awkward delivery that uh, I I feel like it just mostly missed the mark. I really have a soft spot for this movie, and I'm not sure why. Um, It's kind of like, eventually we're going to cover 555, which is another really famous shot on video movie, uh, much more famous than this one, and has a similar style and story and i feel the same way about that one where it's like it's not good it's fairly inept 
and yet I I like it and I can't explain why you've got casual misogyny that may or may not be humorous in tone um, and the director writer may or may not share. Um, I don't know, but it's, you can't take it seriously because it's the soup Nazi delivering it in this incredibly deadpan weird performance that's designed as a red herring, but it's clearly not a red herring because it's so over the top and you've got soap opera elements like thrown into what's essentially a giallo um, with a black gloved killer. You have a overly analytical psychological justification for the killer, just like you'd have in a giallo movie. Um, This really is like an homage to the giallo films. And I just think it's fun. I, I, as I've said in the past though, I hold shot on video movies to a different standard because I just think it's a different kind of medium. It's a different kind of storytelling. Um, I want to give it more, but I don't think I can give this more than like two stars, two and a half maybe. But before I move on, I want to read part of Bleeding Skull's uh, a review of this movie um, because it's, uh, it's really well done. It says, Night Ripper is an unbelievable slasher soap opera that stars the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. This is also known as the culmination of a dream that you've never had, but wish you'd had a thousand times. A man with a mustache, slight lisp, and large burgundy eyeglasses states, quote, I was a butcher for five years and now I'm a photographer. Anything can happen. Indeed, this statement is most profound. Anything can happen. And within the lexicon of shot on video trash, it often does, which is why Night Ripper, a slasher that focuses on the throes of relationships rather than slashing, remains an anomaly. Nothing much happens. Still, my enthusiasm cannot be concealed. Updating the legend of Jack the Ripper in the neon-soaked haze of 1986, this movie plays out like an episode of Days of Our Lives that was spiked with cologne from the set of 21 Jump Street, plus gratuitous face slash stabbings and lines like, baby, I wish you were here to do it to me. Somewhere south of synth-pop heaven and west of convertible jaguars lives the Ripper and his shiny knife. Yet while the Ripper stabs this model victims in the face, freeze frame, and mutilates their bodies, we don't see it, all is not well. Since the characters don't have names, I can only relate the following. Love at first sight is possible, as long as the person you're falling in love with is having her glamour shot taken. Fiancés cannot be trusted. Finally, when your mistress yells, this isn't love, this is two sweaty bodies fucking under a flood lamp, and I'm tired of flood lamps, it might be a good idea to listen to her. Featuring a synth-pop soundtrack that sounds like an inebriated jam between Depeche Mode and someone's dad, scumbags having sleazy sex in grimy apartments, and a bizarro climax in a mannequin factory, Night Ripper is an unheralded slice of evil life from direct-to-video trenches. 
this movie steers clear of the misogyny found in director Jeff Hathcock's other hits. And that's good news for everyone. All right, I'll stop it there. But I like a lot of that. I agree with a lot of that. That makes the film sound a lot more grandiose than it'd be. Yeah, it's a really simple affair. Um, but anyway, let's check the Magic 8 Ball and see what we're doing next week. All right, so next week we're doing a really offbeat 1971 flick called Simon, King of the Witches. Have you ever heard of this one? No, I've not. It's a pretty obscure one, but there was a there was a video distribution company that I guess is still around, but they they released a lot of obscure like exploitation flicks on VHS on like bootleg VHSs and their name is King of the Witches and they took it from this movie. Um, I think Rob Zombie took a lyric from this movie as well. Um, But anyway, it's a really fascinating one. It's actually really perfect for this show. It's really in line with some of our interests, I think, at least mine. So anyway, you can find it on YouTube. Um, Real easy flick to see, which is nice because the VHS releases are rare as hell. But we will talk about those next week. This is a movie that has a trailer. Uh, it does, indeed. Yeah. Um, it has some real actors in it, too, who were in other movies. <laughs> a few it also has... Ago, what? It, it, so a few years ago, I did like a, a Halloween movie marathon where the theme was actors that were in Twin Peaks. You know, what horror movies were they in? And now I'm thinking, can you do that with Seinfeld? Is there is there more than two films? Well, what are the two you're thinking of? Well, this one and uh, Blood and Lace, right? Yeah. Um, the guy who plays George Costanza is in uh, The Burning. He plays, a hi- he plays a high school camping victim. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's something to look into. Maybe that'll be um, my theme this year. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is in Troll. Is she? Yeah. The very first troll? Yeah. Ooh. But anyway, marathon. Um, Simon King of the Witches from 1971. This does this movie also features a, a really weird and rare, like gay subtext for 1971. So I'm curious to talk about that. I've actually never spoken with anyone else about this movie. So I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Anyway, until next week, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything that we do. Uh, You can make recommendations there, uh, films you want us to throw in, the eight ball, um, or just ideas for the show. And with that said, uh, Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. All right. We'll talk to you all next week about Simon King of the Witches.